May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Be seated. Well, good morning to everyone. It is uh, good to see you all here today, and, and good to hear, hear you all today, huh? Right? Isn't it good to be singing again, hear the choir with us singing? Um, you know, there's a, a lot of things uh, stirred up in, um, in the readings today, that things that come to mind, and uh, there's um, that special verse in uh, the Hebrews passage, um, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, my good friend, um, departed mentor Dick Libby comes to mind, um, because that's on his kneeler, and that's a, a verse that I have held close to the heart for years. Um, you have in the uh, passage there from Job and the accompanying passage in the Psalms, a, a, a dialogue almost uh, between Job and, and, and God in a sense where it, you know the, the story of Job, that he, how he has been stricken and um, has been complaining to his friends and to God about the situation. And his friends have said, Job, you must have done something, and that's why you're in this situation. And, of course, Job is pleading again and again, I'm innocent. I have done nothing. And if God was here, I could confront him. And so today we have the passage that begins, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God in relationship with Job has a few things to say. And Job was, in a sense, struck dumb and silent. But if we were to continue the, uh, the conversation, as I said, that perhaps we could see in the verses in the psalm, Job's response after God has brought his presence to him. Job saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, how excellent is your greatness. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. The awe of God. That conversation and that relationship. Job and the psalm. And then we have, of course, the, the gospel. and the, We can say the audacity of James and, and John. The two brothers who, who come up to the one who has raised Jairus' daughter and given sight to the blind, and to him they say, we want you to do for us what we ask you. And that's a pretty bold statement, if you think about it. These two brothers who are fishermen, demanding that Jesus do what they want him to do. The conversation and the dynamics that get brought up from that, that we see in the gospel. But I want us to focus in on the last verse of the gospel passage and the idea of the sermon being that the ransom has been paid. And the last words that Jesus says to us, For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, the ransom has been paid. This is the closest that we get to a mission statement in Mark's gospel. And it is essential to understanding his story. Because here we find the idea of service, which Jesus has said time and time and time again. And here we find the idea of sacrifice, of a ransom paid to free those who believe the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The story of today's gospel, and to, to, to place it within the sweep of what Mark is telling us, it happens on the road to Jerusalem. Just previously in the, the passage, uh, we understand that fear and amazement are in the air as this crowd is following Jesus. They are tense. They are expectant. People are wondering what will happen when Jesus enters the city of David. They are approaching Jericho, where they will encounter Bartimaeus by the roadside. And from there, they will go up to Jerusalem, to the very heart of their faith, to the holy temple and the holy precincts. And what will happen in that confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, and the leaders. For the third time, he has told his disciples that he will be handed over to the Romans, who will torture him and kill him. But their efforts to destroy him will ultimately fail because he is God's beloved. He is the Son of Man. And after three days, he will rise to new life. And in the process, a great work will be accomplished. An eternal example will be given. And a people will be freed to become servants of each other and the world. You know, at times, as I go back and forth and back and forth within the Gospels and, and the, the epistles and all that the Christian message has to say, it occurs to me sometimes it seems that Jesus is talking about a parallel universe where our rules and our common sense just don't apply. You want to be great? You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be a slave. Not just a slave of one, but a slave of all. And we don't need to, to go into a, a discussion of the horrors of, of chattel slavery to understand our own current attitudes about servanthood and service. Just look at the service industry, from school bus drivers to those in chicken farms on the eastern shore. Our so-called essential workers still clamor for respect and living wages, while our nursing homes seek staff. It is into this world, our world, that Jesus wants to insert himself and his understanding and into our lives. He says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. A new way of being in relationship with God and with each other is called for. And it is inaugurated by the cross. As he says, the Son of Man came to give his life. 
a ransom for many. The ancient idea was that if someone was enslaved, a ransom could be paid to free them. And the early church was known for this practice. You know, all through Paul's epistles, you hear about, you know, no slave, no free. That means that there were slaves within the community. And there were slaves who needed to be freed, that the community wanted to give of itself to bring them not just spiritual freedom, but freedom within the world, paying that ransom. We know, of course, that the abolitionist societies often ransomed slaves. And just yesterday, I read a story from the uh, time of slavery about uh, the Ebenezer AME Church in Baltimore holding a fundraiser at one time to free one of its lay leaders. Jesus' sacrifice, his redeeming act, speaks to us across the millennia. He has given us a new life as he has given his life. As I said, the ransom has been paid and we are free. Free from what, you might ask? St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, writes, You, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you or how this lands on your ears, but this is a curious concept. And we are set free only to become slaves? We have exchanged one master for another? This is indeed a strange sort of freedom. As I said, at times it seems Jesus and the entire world of Christian thought describes a parallel universe, a way of living in the world, yet not enthrall to the world. Of course, with freedom comes risk and responsibility. We step into the unknown. Without the proper tools and support, we flounder. Fear can take hold of us. I've heard of prison inmates who become so comfortable being institutionalized that they will commit petty infractions to prevent their release. Or once on the outside, they will commit minor crimes to return to life behind bars. Now, that may be an extreme example, influenced by countless other factors, but there is a truth in that our old ways can enslave and entrap us. Freedom, be it spiritual or secular, can be unwanted, unexpected, and rejected. We may not want the ransom to be paid, but alas, brothers and sisters, it has been paid. And so what are we to do? The good news does not end with our being freed. Let me now repeat the words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian and martyr from World War II, who wrote, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. A transformation of heart, soul, and mind must occur. Divorce from what we used to be and from who we used to be 
We must learn new ways of being in the world. A new identity is thrust upon us, and we may find it strange and exhilarating, bizarre and unsettling. Now that I am free, who am I? Everywhere, people struggle with these questions, perhaps even more so in the last year and a half. As the pandemic woes continue, countries stumble forward into new realities. Corporations reassess themselves, as do churches, leaders, and consultants, investors huddle together, seeking a new way to do church. If Christ has freed us, they ask, if the pandemic has freed us, after practically bringing us to our knees, then what's next? What is the church to do in a society that gets along just fine without it? People talk about a post-Christian society that we're living in. Perhaps we're being thrown back to what existed in the pre-Christian society, the second and third centuries. For all we know, those ancient Christians may have something to teach us in the 21st century about faith and patience and holding to the mission when just about everyone else gives you little or no thought. We have been freed to be transformed and renewed. Again, I, I turn to St. Paul's letter to the Romans, where he writes about the renewing of our minds and that in that renewal, it brings about the necessary transformation. And to that transformation, the end is that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is the full expression of his will for us as individuals, for us as St. Anne's, for his church as the Christian witness in the world. The end result of all this may surprise us. Up in Mount Washington in, in Baltimore, there is a beautiful, beautiful old church building dating from the 1920s. But no community worships there. St. John's Episcopal Church now worships at Springwell's Senior Living. Transformation and renewal brought them to a new home, but not without deep and long discernment, not without discussion, not without likely harsh words back and forth, and more than a few tears being shed. And they had a tough decision. Keep plowing their time and treasure into a building they could no longer afford, or move to a place where they could reclaim their mission. They could, in a sense, continue to be enslaved by their old church or, with God's grace, be set free to live into a new calling. Today, as I said, they minister to the elderly at Springwell, to each other, and to whomever finds their way into their chapel. They describe themselves in these words, and I quote, 
an imperfect community connected in Christ, courageously seeking purpose through God. Brothers and sisters, we too are an imperfect community connected in Christ and by Christ. For though we come from various backgrounds and are endowed with unique gifts, we are one body in Christ, aware of our differences, hopefully accepting of each other, encouraging each other. That idea of encouragement rings so forcefully through the scriptures and through the epistles as Paul and St. Peter and the writers of the Hebrews continually talk to their communities and say, encourage each other in the faith, in the mission, in the work of Christ. Encourage each other as we prayerfully discern what is God's will for us and our church now and in the post-pandemic time. We have been freed not to return to the past, but to move into the future, certain of God's grace and Christ's presence as we seek to serve each other and the world around us. As I said, and as the Gospels tell us, brothers and sisters, the ransom has been paid. And so, what are we to do? I'll end with a few words from William Blake, the visionary poet of long ago. And they speak to what might lie before us. I sought my God, my God I could not find. I sought my soul, and my soul eluded me. I sought to serve my brother in his need, and I found all three, my God, my soul, and thee. Amen.